welcome back everyone to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Today, a Zane Grey baseball story called The Rube's Honeymoon. He's got a new manager. Watch him pitch now. That was what Nan Brown said to me about Rube Hurdle, my great pitcher, and I took it as her way of announcing her engagement. My baseball career held some proud moments, but this one, wherein I realized the success of my matchmaking plans, was certainly the proudest one. So entirely outside of the honest pleasure I got out of the Rube's happiness, there was reason for me to congratulate myself. He was a transformed man, so absolutely renewed, so wild with joy, that on the strength of it, I decided that Pennant for Worcester was a foregone conclusion, and sure of the money promised me by the directors, Millie and I began to make plans for the cottage up on the hill. The Rube insisted on pitching Monday's game against the Torontos, and although poor fielding gave them a couple of runs, they never had a chance. They couldn't see the ball. The Rube wrapped it around their necks and between their wrists and straight over the plate with such incredible speed that they might just as well have tried to bat rifle bullets. That night, I was happy. Spears, my veteran captain, was one huge smile. Radburn quietly assured me that all was over now but the shouting. All the boys were happy. And the Rube was the happiest of all. At the hotel, he burst out with his exceeding good fortune. He and Nan were to be married on the 4th of July. After the noisy congratulations were over and the Rube had gone, Spears looked at me, and I looked at him. Con, he said soberly, we can't let him get married on the 4th. Why not? Sure we can. We'll help him get married. I'll tell you it'll save the pennant for us. Look how he pitched today. Nan Brown is our salvation. See here, Con, you've got softening in the brain, too. Where's your baseball sense? We've got a pennant to win. By July 4th, we'll be close to the lead again, and there's that three weeks trip on the road, the longest and hardest of the season. We've just got to break even on that trip. You know what that means. If the Rube marries Nan, what are we going to do? We can't leave him behind. If he takes Nan with us, why, it'll be a honeymoon, and half the gang is stuck on Nan Brown, and Nan Brown would flirt in her bridal veil. Why, Con, we're up against a worse proposition than ever. You know what, Cap? You're right, I groaned. I never thought of that. We've got to postpone the wedding. How on earth can we? I've heard her tell Millie that. She'll never consent to it. Say, this might drive me to think. All I got to say is this, Con. If the Rube takes his wife on that trip, it's going to be an all-fired Hummer. Don't you forget that. I'm not likely to. But Spears, the point is this. Will the Rube win his games? Figuring from his work today, I'd gamble he'll never lose another game. It ain't that. I'm thinking of what the gang will do to him and Nan on the cars and at the hotels. Oh, Lord, Con, it ain't possible to stand for that honeymoon trip. Just think of it. If the worst comes to the worst, Cap, I don't care for anything but the games. If we get in the lead and stay there, I'll stand for anything. Couldn't the gang be coaxed or bought off to let the Rube and Nan alone? Nah, not on your life. There ain't enough love or money on earth to stop them. It'll be awful. Mind, I'm not responsible. Don't you go hold me responsible. In all my years of baseball, I never went on a trip with a bride in the game. That's new on me, 
and I never heard of it. It'd be bad enough if he wasn't a rube, and she wasn't a crazy girl fan and a flirt to boot, and with half the boys in love with her. But as it is... Spears gave up, and gravely shaking his head, he left me. I spent a little while in sober reflection, and finally came to the conclusion that, in my desperate ambition to win the pennant, I would have taken half a dozen rube pitchers and their baseball-made brides on the trip, if by so doing I could increase the percentage of games won. Nevertheless, I wanted to postpone the rube's wedding if it was possible, and I went out to see Millie and asked her to help us. But for once in her life, Millie turned traitor. Con, you don't want to postpone it. Why, how perfectly lovely. Mrs. Stringer will go on that trip, and Mrs. Bogard. Connie, I'm coming, too. She actually jumped up and down in glee. That was the woman in her. It takes a wedding to get a woman. I remonstrated and pleaded and commanded, all to no purpose. Millie intended to go on that trip to see the games, and the fun, and the honeymoon. She coaxed so hard that I yielded. Thereupon she called up Mrs. Stringer on the telephone, and of course found that young woman just as eager as she was. For my part, I threw anxiety and care to the four winds and decided to be as happy as any of them. The pennant was mine. Something kept ringing that in my ears. With the rube working his iron arm for the edification of his proud Nancy Brown, there was extreme likelihood of diverse shutouts and humiliating defeats for some Eastern League teams. How well I calculated became a matter of baseball history during that last week of June. We won six straight games three of which fell to the Rube's credit. His opponent scored four runs in the three games against the 19 we made. On July 1st, Radburn beat Providence and Cairns won the second game. We now had a string of eight victories. Sunday we rested, and Monday was the fourth, with morning and afternoon games with Buffalo. On the morning of the fourth, I looked for the Rube at the hotel, but I couldn't find him. He didn't show up at the grounds when the other boys did, and I began to worry. It was the Rube's turn to pitch, and we were neck and neck with Buffalo for first place. If we won both games, we would go ahead of our rivals. So I was all on edge, and kept going to the dressing room to see if the Rube had arrived. He came, finally, when all the boys were dressed and about to go out for practice. He had on a new suit, a tailor-made suit at that, and he looked fine. There was about him a kind of strange radiance. He stated simply that he had arrived late because he had just been married. Before congratulations were out of our mouths, he turned to me. Con, I want to pitch both games today, he said. What? Buffalo's on the card today, and we're only three points behind them. If we win both, we'll be leading the league once more. I don't know about pitching you both games. I reckon we'll be in the lead tonight, then, he replied, for I'll win them both. I was about to reply when Dave, the groundkeeper, called me to the door, saying there was a man to see me. I went out, and there stood Morrissey, manager of the Chicago American League team. We knew each other well and exchanged greetings. Con, I dropped off to see you about this new pitcher of yours, the one they call the Rube. I want to see him work. I've heard he's pretty fast. How about it? Wait till you see him pitch, I replied. I could scarcely get that much out, for Morrissey's presence meant a great deal, and I didn't want to betray my elation. Any strings on him? 
queried the big league manager sharply. Well, Morrissey, not exactly. I can give you the first call. You'll have to bid high, though. Just wait till you see him work. I'm glad to hear that, Con. My scout was over here watching him pitch and says he's a wonder. What luck it was that Morrissey should have come upon this day. I could hardly contain myself. Almost I began to spend the money I would get for selling the room to the big league manager. We took seats in the grandstand, as Morrissey did not want to be seen by any players, and I stayed there with him till the gong sounded. There was a big attendance. I looked all over the stand for Nan, but she was lost in the crowd. When I went down to the bench, I saw her up in my private box with Millie. It took no second glance to see that Nan Brown was a bride and glorying in that fact. Then, in the absorption of the game, I became oblivious to Millie and Nan, the noisy crowd, the giant firecrackers and the smoke, to the presence of Morrissey, to all except the Rube and my team and their opponents. Fortunately for my hopes, the game opened with characteristic Worcester Dash. Little McCall doubled, Ashwell drew his base on four wide pitches, and Stringer drove the ball over the right field fence. Three runs. Three runs were enough to win that game. Of all the exhibitions of pitching with which the Rube had favored us, this one was the finest. It was perhaps not so much his marvelous speed and unhittable curves that made the game memorable in the annals of pitching. It was his perfect control in the placing of balls, in the cutting of corners, and his absolute implacable mastery of the situation. Buffalo was unable to find him at all. The game was swift, short, decisive, with the score five to nothing in our favor. But the score did not tell all of the Rube's work that morning. He shut out Buffalo without a hit or a scratch, the first no-hit, no-run game of the year. He gave no base on balls. Not a Buffalo player got the first base. Only one fly went to the outfield. For once I forgot Millie after a game, and I hurried to find Morrissey and carried him off to have dinner with me. Yeah, your Rube's a wonder, and that's a fact, he said to me several times. Where on earth did you get him? He's my meat, you understand? Can you let me have him right now? No, Morrissey, I've got the pennant to win first. Then I'll sell him. How much? Morrissey hammered the table with his fist, and his eyes gleamed. Carried away as I was by his vehemence, I was yet able to calculate shrewdly, and I decided to name a very high price from which I could come down and still make a splendid deal. How much? demanded Morrissey. Five thousand dollars, I replied, and gulped when I got the words out. Morrissey never batted an eye. Waiter, quick! Pen and ink and paper. Presently my hand, none too firm, was signing my name to a contract whereby I was to sell my pitcher for $5,000 at the close of the current season. I never saw a man look so pleased as Morrissey when he folded that contract and put it in his pocket. He bade me goodbye and hurried off to catch a train, and he never knew the Rube had pitched the great game on his wedding day. That afternoon, before a crowd that had to be roped off the diamond, I put the Rube against the Bisons. How well he showed the baseball knowledge he had assimilated. He changed his style in that second game. He used a slow ball and wide curves and took things easy. He made Buffalo hit the ball, and when runners got on bases once more, let out his speed and held them down. He relied upon the players behind him, and they were equal to the occasion. It was a totally different game from that of the morning, and perhaps one more suited to the pleasure of the audience. 
There was plenty of hard hitting, sharp fielding, and good base running, and the game was close and exciting up to the eighth, when Mullaney's triple gave us two runs and a lead that was not headed. To the deafening roar of the bleachers, the Rube walked off the field, having pitched Worcester into first place in the pennant race. We'll return to our story right after this message from our sponsors. And now, back to our story. That night, the boys planned their first job on the Rube. We had ordered a special Pullman for travel to Toronto, and when I got to the depot in the morning, the Pullman was a white fluttering mass of satin ribbons. Also, there was a brass band and thousands of baseball fans and barrels of old footgear. The Rube and Nan arrived in a cab and were immediately mobbed. The crowd roared, the band played, the engine whistled, the bell clanged, and the air was full of confetti and slippers and showers of rice like hail pattered everywhere. A somewhat disheveled bride and groom boarded the Pullman and breathlessly hid in a stateroom. The train started and the crowd gave one last rousing cheer. Old Spears yelled from the back platform. Fellers and fans, you needn't worry none about leaving the Rube and his bride to the tender mercies of the gang. A hundred years from now, people will talk about this honeymoon baseball trip. Wait till we come back and say, just to put you wise, no matter what else happens, we're coming back in first place. It was surely a merry party in that Pullman. The bridal couple emerged from their hiding place and held a sort of reception in which the rube appeared shy and frightened, and Nan resembled a joyous, fluttering bird in gray. I didn't see if she kissed every man on the team, but she kissed me as if she'd been wanting to do it for ages. Millie kissed the rube, and so did the other women, to his infinite embarrassment. Nan's effect upon that crowd was most singular. She was sweetness and caprice and joy personified. We settled down presently to something approaching order, and I, for one, with very keen ears and alert eyes, because I didn't want to miss anything. I see the lambs a gambolin, observed McCall, in a voice louder than was necessary to convey his meaning to Mullaney, his partner in the seat. Yes, it do seem as if there was joy abounding hereabouts, replied Mull with fervor. It's more springtime than summer, said Ashwell, and everything in nature is running in pairs. There are the sheep and the cattle and the birds. I see two kingfishers fishing over here. And there's a couple of honeybees making honey. Oh, honey, and by George, if there ain't two butterflies folding their wings round each other. See the dandelions kissing in the field. Then the staid Captain Spears spoke up with an appearance of sincerity and a tone that was nothing short of remarkable. Reggie, see the sunshine asleep upon yon bank? Ain't it lovely? And that white cloud sailing thither amid the blue. How spontaneous! Joy is abroad o'er this beautiful land today. Oh, yes. And love's wings hover o'er the little lambs and the bullfrogs in the pond and the dicky birds in the trees. What sweetness to lie in the grass, the lap of bounteous earth, eating apples in the Garden of Eden, and chasing away the snakes, and dreaming of thee, sweetheart. Spears was singing when he got so far, and there was no telling what he might have done if Mullaney, unable to stand the agony, had not jabbed a pin in him. But that only made way for the efforts of the other boys, each of whom tried to outdo the other in poking fun at the Reuben Nan. The big pitcher was too gloriously happy to note much of what was going on around him, but when it dawned upon him, he grew red and white by turns. 
Nan, however, was more than equal to the occasion. Presently she smiled at Spears, and such a smile. The captain looked as if he'd just partaken of an intoxicating wine. With a heightened color in her cheeks and a dangerous flash in her roguish eyes, Nan favored McCall with a look, which was as much as to say that she remembered him with a dear sadness. She made eyes at every fellow in the car, and then bringing back her gaze to the rube, as if glorying in comparison, she nestled her curly black head on his shoulder. He gently tried to move her, but it was not possible. Nan knew how to meet the ridicule of half a dozen old lovers. One by one they buried themselves in newspapers, and finally McCall, for once utterly beaten, showed a white feather and sank back out of sight behind his seat. The boys did not recover from that shock until late in the afternoon. As it was a physical impossibility for Nan to rest her head all day upon her husband's broad shoulder, the boys toward dinner time came out of their jealous trance. I heard them plotting something. When dinner was called, about half of my party, including the bride and groom, were at once into the dining car. Time there flew by swiftly. And later, when we were once more in our pullman, and I had gotten interested in a game of cards with Millie and Stringer and his wife, the rube come marching up to me with a very red face. Con, I reckon some of the boys have stolen my, our, grips, said he. What? I asked. He explained that during his absence in the dining car, someone had entered his stateroom and stolen his grip and Nan's. I hastened at once to aid the rube in his search. The boys swore by everything under and beyond the sun they had not seen the grips. They appeared very much grieved at the loss and pretended to help in searching the pullman. At last, with the assistance of a porter, we discovered the missing grips in an upper berth. The rube carried them off to his stateroom, and we knew soon from his uncomplimentary remarks that the contents of the suitcases had been mixed and manhandled. But he didn't hunt for the jokers. We arrived at Toronto before daylight next morning and remained in the Pullman until seven o'clock. When we got out, it was discovered that the Rube and Nan had stolen a march upon us. We traced them to the hotel and found them at breakfast. After breakfast, we formed a merry sightseeing party and rode all over the city. That afternoon, when Raddy let Toronto down with three hits and the boys played a magnificent game behind him, we won seven to two. I knew at last and for certain that the Worcester team had come into its own again. Then next day, Cairns won a close, exciting game, and following that, on the third day, the matchless Rube toyed with the Torontos. Eleven straight games won. I was in the clouds, and never had I seen so beautiful a light as shown in Millie's eyes. From that day, the honeymoon trip of the Worcester Baseball Club, as the newspapers heralded it, was a triumphant march. We won two out of three games in Montreal, broke even with the hard-fighting Bisons, took three straight from Rochester, and won one and tied one out of three with Hartford. It would have been wonderful ball-playing for a team to play on home grounds, and we were doing the full circuit of the league. Spears had called out the turn when he said the trip would be a hummer. Nan Hurdle had brought us wonderful luck, but the tricks they played on Wit and his girl Fan Bride. Ashwell, who was a capital actor, disguised himself as a conductor and pretended to try to eject Wit and Nan from the train, urging that lovemaking was not permitted. Some of the team hired a clever young woman to hunt the rube up at the hotel and claim old acquaintance with him. Poor Wit almost collapsed when the young woman threw her arms about his neck just as Nan entered the parlor. Upon the instant, Nan became wild as a little tigress 
and it took much explanation and eloquence to reinstate wit in her affections. Another time, Spears, the wily old fox, succeeded in detaining Nan on the way to the station, and the two missed the train. At first the rube laughed with the others, but when Stringer remarked that he'd noticed a growing attachment between Nan and Spears, my great pitcher experienced the first pangs of the green-eyed monster. We had to hold him to keep him from jumping from the train, and it took Millie and Mrs. Stringer to soothe him. I had to wire back to Rochester for a special train for Spears and Nan, and even then we had to play half a game without the services of our captain. So far upon our trip, I'd been fortunate in securing comfortable rooms and the best of transportation for my party. At Hartford, however, I encountered difficulties. I couldn't get a special Pullman, and the sleeper we entered already had a number of occupants. After the ladies of my party had been assigned to berths, it was necessary for some of the boys to sleep double in upper berths. It was late when we got aboard. The berths were already made up, and soon we had all retired. In the morning, very early, I was awakened by a disturbance. It sounded like a squeal. I heard an astonished exclamation, another squeal, the pattering of little feet, then hoarse uproar of laughter from the ball players in the upper berths. Following that came low, excited conversation between the porter and somebody, then an angry snort from the rube and the thud of his heavy feet in the aisle. What took place after that was guesswork for me, but I gathered from the roars and bawls that Rube was after some of the boys. I poked my head between the curtains and saw him digging into the berths. "'Where's McCall?' he yelled. Mac was nowhere in that sleeper, judging from the vehement denials, but the Rube kept on digging and prodding in the upper berths. "'I'm going to lick you, Mac, so I reckon you better show up,' shouted the Rube. The big fellow was mad as a hornet. When he got to me, he grasped me with his great fence-rail-splitting hands, and I cried out with pain. "'Say, Wit, let up! Max, not here! What's wrong?' "'I'll show you when I find him!' And the rube stalked on down the aisle, a tragically comic figure in his pajamas. In his search for Mac, he pried into several upper berths that contained occupants who were not ballplayers, and these protested in a fright. Then the rube began to investigate the lower berths. A row of heads protruded in a bobby line from between the curtains of the upper berths. "'Here, you Indian! Don't you look in there! That's my wife's berth!' yelled Stringer. Bogart, too, evinced great excitement. "'Hurdle, keep out of lower eight or I'll kill you!' he shouted. What the room might have done there was no telling, but as he grasped a curtain it was interrupted by a shriek from some woman assuredly not of our party. "'Get out, you horrid wretch! Help! Porter!' Help! Conductor! Instantly there was a deafening tumult in the car. When it had subsided somewhat, and I considered I would be safe, I descended from my berth and made my way to the dressing room. Sprawled over the leather seat was the rube pummeling McCall with a hearty goodwill. I would have interfered had it not been for Mac's demeanor. He was half frightened, half angry, and utterly unable to defend himself or even resist because he was laughing too hard. "'Doggone it, Wit! I didn't do it! I swear it was Spears! Stop thumping me now, or I'll get sore! You hear me? I wasn't the one, I tell you! Cheese it!' For all his protesting, Mac received a good thumping, and I doubted not in the least that he deserved it. The wonder of the affair, however, was the fact that no one appeared to know what had made the rube so furious. The porter wouldn't tell, and Mac was strangely reticent, 
though his smile was one to make a fellow exceedingly sure something out of the ordinary had befallen. It was not until I was having breakfast in Providence that I learned the true cause of Rube's conduct, and Milly confided it to me, insisting on strict confidence. I promise not to tell, she said. Now you promise you'll never tell. Well, Connie, went on Milly, when I'd promised. It was the funniest thing yet, but it was horrid of McCall. You see, the Rube had upper seven, and Nan had lower seven. Early this morning, about daylight, Nan awoke very thirsty and got up to get a drink. During her absence, probably, but anyway, sometime last night, McCall changed the number on her curtain, and when Nan came back to number seven, of course she almost got in the wrong berth. Oh, no wonder the Rube punched him, I declared. I wish we were safe home. Something's going to happen yet on this trip. I was faithful to my promise to Millie, but the secret leaked out somewhere. Perhaps Mac told it. And before the game that day, all the players knew it. The Rube, having recovered his good humor, minded it not in the least. He couldn't have felt ill will for any length of time. Everything seemed to get back into smooth running order, and the honeymoon trip bade fair to wind up beautifully. But, somehow or other, and about something unknown to the rest of us, the Rube and Nan quarreled. It was their first quarrel. Millie and I tried to patch it up, but we failed. We lost the first game to Providence and won the second. The next day, a Saturday, was the last game of the trip, and it was Rube's turn to pitch. Several times during the first two days, the Rube and Nan about half made up their quarrel, only in the end to fall deeper into it. Then the last straw came in a foolish move on the part of willful Nan. She happened to meet Henderson, her former admirer, and in a flash she took up her flirtation with him where she had left off. "'Don't go to the game with him, Nan,' I pleaded. "'It's a silly thing for you to do. Of course you don't mean anything except to torment wit. But cut it out. The gang will make him miserable, and we'll lose the game. There's no telling what might happen.' "'I'm supremely indifferent to what happens.' she replied, with a rebellious toss of her black hair. I hope Wit gets beaten. She went to the game with Henderson and sat in the grandstand, and the boys spied them out and told the Rube. He did not believe it at first, but finally saw them, looked deeply hurt and offended, and then he grew angry. But the gong, sounded at that moment, drew his attention to the business of the day and to his pitching. His work that day reminded me of the first game he ever pitched for me, upon which occasion Captain Spears got the best out of him by making him angry. For several innings, Providence was helpless before his delivery. Then something happened that showed me a crisis was near. A wag of a fan yelled from the bleachers, Honeymoon Rube! This cry was taken up by the delighted fans and it rolled around the field. But the Rube pitched on, harder than ever. Then the knowing bleacherite who had started the cry changed it somewhat. "'Nanny's Rube!' he yelled. This, too, went the rounds, and still the Rube, though red in the face, preserved his temper and his pitching control. All would have been well if Bud Willett, comedian of the Providence team, had not hit upon a way to rattle Rube. "'Nanny's goat!' he shouted from the coaching lines. Every Providence player took it up. The Rube was not proof against that. He yelled so fiercely at them and glared so furiously and towered so formidably that they seized for the moment. Then he let drive with his fast, straight ball and hit the first Providence batter in the ribs. His comrades had to help him to the bench. 
The rube hit the next batter on the leg, and judging from the crack of the ball, I fancied that player would walk lame for several days. The rube tried to hit the next batter and sent him to first on balls. Thereafter it became a dodging contest with honors about equal between pitcher and batters. The Providence players stormed and the bleachers roared. But I would not take the rube out of the game and went on with the rube forcing in runs. With the score a tie and three men on bases, one of the players on the bench again yelled, Nanny's goat! Straight as a string, the rube shot the ball at this fellow and bounded after it. The crowd rose in an uproar. The base runners began to score. I left my bench and ran across the space, but not in time to catch the rube. I saw him hit two or three of the Providence men. Then the policeman got to him, and a real fight brought the big audience into the stamping melee. Before the rube was collared, I saw at least four bluecoats on the grass. The game broke up, and the crowd spilled itself in streams over the field. Excitement ran high. I tried to force my way into the mass to get at the rube and the officers, but this was impossible. I feared the rube would be taken from the officers and treated with violence, so I waited with the surging crowd, endeavoring to get nearer. Soon we were in the street, and it seemed as if all the stands had emptied their yelling occupants. A trolley car came down along the street, splitting the mass of people and driving them back. A dozen policemen summarily bundled the rube upon the rear end of the car. Some of these officers boarded the car, and some remained in the street to ward off the vengeful fans. I saw someone thrust forward a frantic young woman. The officers stopped her, then suddenly helped her on the car just as I started. I recognized Nan. She gripped the rube with both hands and turned a white, fearful face upon the angry crowd. The rube stood in the grasp of his wife and the policeman, and he looked like a roughed lion. He shook his big fist and bawled in a far-reaching voice, I can lick you all! To my infinite relief, the trolley gathered momentum and safely passed out of danger. The last thing I made out was Nan pressing close to the rube's side. That moment saw their reconciliation and my joy that it was the end of the rube's honeymoon. Thanks for joining us for this great Zane Gray baseball story at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. If you enjoy our stories, please do send us a review. We appreciate reviews very much. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.